Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org, where you can purchase tickets for the movies that we talk about on this show, including today's. My name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison. You can't just buy me a guitar every time you mess up. But uh, if you'd like, you can follow me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Uh, I'm Harry. I'm pleased to report that there will be no ritual animal slaughters of any kind on this episode, as far as I know, anyway. And you can find me at Shiitake Harry. Uh, I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RB Please. I did not know everybody was going to have a quote from the movie in the intro, so I apologize. Not everybody did, but I'm going to stall for time for a little bit so that our guest might be able to cook one up. No, uh, no pressure and no, no hard feelings if you don't. Uh, today, we're joined by a very special guest to talk about today's movie, uh, Taylor Zastro. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I am very disappointed that I did not have a quote prepared, but it just so happens that um, the guys had some of my favorites that always stick with me, so that made me very happy. <laughs> Wonderful. How serendipitous then. Uh, I didn't have one either. So I, I don't know why I don't anticipate this happening. It's happened like two or three times in a row. Um, Cody today's movie. Unaware is every time, but I just had to. I, had to <laughs> wow. I was, so I was hoping we would just roll with the spontaneity, but instead we'll talk about it for a while. We'll hone in on it, which is yeah, also yeah, yeah. cool and fun. And thanks, hey, fellas. Have you, have you listened to this show before? That's exactly what we do. We don't. I have not. Anything, I've told though. you it gives me a panic attack every time I hear my voice uh, <laughs> on a recording. So no, I have not listened to any of our episodes. Thank you. I'm gonna. Se- I'm gonna set my ringtone to your voice saying that, and then s- just <sighs> make sure that I'm around next time you call. My I heard dream come quote. true. I, my my quote is, you know, I'm thinking of getting a Tercel because my first <laughs> car was a Toyota Tercel, uh, and so that's my uh, Wow, personal ties. Uh, I don't have one, and I'm going to stand uh, in complete defiance of this rule. Anyway. Uh, because you don't you... like to do what people expect, right? It's exactly. Uh, Let's go. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Uh, so today's movie is 10 things... <laughs> Today's movie is 10 Things Ahead About You, playing at the trial on this coming week. 1999, directed by Gil Junger. Uh, Aaron, I believe, if his microphone holds up, has a summary for us. Aaron, you want to take it away? Yes, forgive me for any recording problems here. Uh, 10 Things I Hate About You, 1999. Yes, directed by Gil Junger. Uh, name I had to look up, how to pronounce. Um, it is a high school romantic comedy film. Um, it uh, When Cameron, who is uh, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, a very young Joseph Gordon-Levitt, uh, is transferred to Pada, Padua High School in Seattle. He immediately falls in love with Bianca Stratford, who is played by Larissa Olianik. Uh, she's a popular girl who is definitely out of his league. Little does he know that she is already sought after by Joey Donner, who's played by Andrew Keegan. He is a popular and attractive high school senior who is also a model on the side. 
To make things worse, Bianca's overprotective father makes the decision to not allow Bianca to date until her antisocial and extremely rebellious older sister, uh, Katarina, played by Julia Stiles, also dates. Uh, and so in order to satisfy the father's demands and win over Bianca's heart, Cameron enlists the help of bad boy Patrick Verona, played by... Uh, why am I blanking about this? Played by uh, Heath, Heath Ledger. Ledger. Come on, yes, man. One Heath Ledger. Holy shit. Uh, to try and win over Katarina. Yes, RIP. Sorry. Um, it, it, it's a very nerdy thing to say about this movie, but this is based on Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew. Probably should be brought up. That's uh, pretty anyway. textual. It's not that nerdy. I didn't want to do it at the beginning because it's like, <laughs> hey, here's the romantic comedy. We talk about all these black and white movies. Here's the romantic comedy. It's based on Shakespeare. No, you got to slip it in at the end, get all the cool stuff out of the way. At the beginning. I don't think you do. But is that the end of your summary? Yeah, that's is a long one. Sorry. Excellent. A fine that summary. Was, that was, it was a fine, fine summary. Uh, and in case anybody's wondering why we have Taylor on the show today, it's because this movie uh, has a special place in your life and you're uh, sort of, it, it, would you call it formative? Is it a movie that you've just seen a bunch or it, did it mean something to you uh, for a long time? I absolutely think it was formative. I mean, you know, we talked about this earlier about, you know, how many times I've seen it, what struck me about it. I couldn't even tell you the first time I did see it. It feels like it's always just been in my life for as long as I've been conscious, um, which sounds really stupid about, you know, a, a teen movie. But um, I think it really, I think it's the way that the women are portrayed in it that have, has always stuck with me where like, you can be a heinous bitch to everybody, but people will still love you. And I think that's great. That is a life lesson to live by, isn't it? It's beautiful. Uh, and so do you, how many times would you estimate you've, you've probably seen it? Can you even count? I can't count. No, there's no way. I mean, it's one of those things where like, if it's on TNT, I would watch it. If I, I got the DVD and if I was sick, it was one of the things that I would watch when I was sitting at home. Um, it's just one of the comfort movies that I am always watching just because it's like, you know, I know what's going to come up. I know what happens. It's always funny to me. Um, there's never really a time when you walk into Miss Perky's office and listen to her speak that you're not going to laugh, even no matter how many times you've seen the movie and heard her talk before. Yeah. Um, it always gets me. So I really don't know how many times I've seen it. It would be impossible to to estimate. <laughs> right. Uh, we'll get to talking about the exact movie in a second, but I, do you think when you think about how many times you've seen this movie and how long you've known about it, how it's just probably part of you by now, uh, can you track any ways in which you think differently or feel differently about it today than you did in yesteryear? Or is, has it always just been, man, this is comfort food. I always come back to this and it's always the same. You know, I think that the messages I take from it have changed um, and have developed just with within my own personal growth and development. Um, I think I can take different, um, you know, I can, I can take different meanings out of it now than I maybe did back when I was younger and I was growing up and maybe a little bit more surly. Um, but in the end, it really always is just, it is comfort food. You really don't have to think about it that much, which is nice. Um, but at the same time is still really entertaining and, um, I think you can still get a lot from it. So yeah, mm -hmm. it's just one of those ones. It's always going to be around for me. 
Right. You got to love a timeless movie, especially one from the 90s that is so incredibly and specifically dated in so many 99 ways. Uh, I'm going to throw it then to Cody um, for a quick overview. What do you think of this movie, Cody? And I guess tell us your experience with it as well. Have you seen this before or is this a fresh, fresh find? Sure. Uh, this is a, a fresh find. I like that a lot. This is a fresh find uh, for me. Um, like this is to Taylor as Wayne's world is to me to just like throw that out. I know I've talked about Wayne's world before, but that is like one of those. I feel like I was just like born and that was embedded into my hard drive. And like, I've always known about it. Um, like a movie that's difficult <laughs> for me to to date in my existence. Um, but this, uh, quite the opposite. Uh, I watched it last night and it filled a, bl- uh, a blind spot for me. I feel like at, at least I, and maybe some of us have talked about, uh, about blind spots or blind spots in movies a lot lately. Uh, this was one for me and I thought it was a wider gap that I was filling in, uh, when I was watching, um, that sort of mid to late nineties high school movie. Uh, but beyond this and clueless, I was having trouble, uh, prior to this recording, like thinking of and, and seeking out other titles that kind of fit that bill. Um, and it could just be me making up a, a subgenre, but to me, it, it says a lot about how uh, influential and definitive those two movies are for that like specific flavor of the high school movie, quote unquote, genre. Um, and I guess going along with more blind spots, uh, there's uh, another one that this kind of touched on regarding the adjacent works. Uh, that these actors dabbled in um, around the same time that this movie came out. A few of them, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Larissa Olenek, were in the TV show Third Rock from the Sun. Um, and Olenek was also the, uh, she played the title character in The Secret World of Alex Mack, another TV show that just embedded this distinct pocket of art that I completely missed while growing up. So all of that having been said, uh, watching 10 Things I Hate About You for the first time in my late 20s in the year 2020 uh, was a great experience for me. Uh, I have no real frame of reference for The Taming of the Shrew uh, coming into uh, coming into this. So I'm coming purely from a, like a movie-only perspective. Uh, it felt really sharply written to me. Um, not a whole lot felt wasted. And I even felt myself wanting to see more of... Uh, uh, specifically like the character interactions because the personalities were so distinct and so vibrant. Um, it also uh, felt to me like a straight up well-made movie. Uh, just like the, the off the cuff examples I can think of. It doesn't, it doesn't settle for the, like the standard shot reverse shot in its conversations. Uh, it opts instead for a lot of uncut, unedited medium shot conversations that sort of weave in and out of other scenes that bookend it. Uh, uh, you know, keeping everybody in the frame at the same time, seeing everybody's face. Uh, there's also a lot of genuinely impressive uh, scene choreography to me. Um, I was uh, by myself in my apartment gushing over the like the school courtyard long takes and the various parties that they went to where we're seeing all these people and we're uh, coordinating so much different action, uh, which it, it uh, led to uh, an experience that felt elevated from something where I'm you know watching a movie about high schoolers where less care was taken because it was clear to me that the people making this movie cared a lot. Um, and that carries through even to like the end credits where they threw in bloopers. I love when movies do that. Uh, and there was this really obvious warm vibe that, uh, and reportedly this is true, but like the cast had a great time making the movie. They were all buds with each other and like that really uh, shown through in the final product uh, as well. But I've done enough talking here, so I will hand the mic off. 
Uh, no problem. I, I love how you tapped into a little bit of just how joyful it was and how joyful clearly it's making was. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Harry, can I get your thoughts? Yeah. Um, I've seen this movie many, many times as well. Uh, I've watched it with my sister. Shout outs to Charlie many times. Um, I think that Cody, what you said is a good transition point for me because that's also at the heart of what I enjoy about this movie is the fact that it's very joyful, um, especially in comparison to its source material, The Taming of the Shrew. Um, there's a sense in this movie that the plot and the actual takeaway that you're meant to, what you're meant to enjoy about this movie are not necessarily in simpatico. Um, I find that the actual dramatic tension and stakes of this movie are nearly non-existent. There are several scenes in this movie. I'm thinking particularly of the second act um, with the I love you baby scene. And then the flashing scene when she gets him out of detention and then the uh, subsequent paintball falling in love montage uh, they barely exist for any sort of plot purpose other than that they wanted to make those scenes. I think that the heart of this movie is in the um, considerable chemistry that Julia Stiles and Heath Ledger, again, RIP, have with one another. Um, in in terms of plot, this, this movie has very um, little or isn't particularly interested. I think that, in fact, the like the first act dramatic stakes that it sets up this idea that they're being duplicitous in the way that they're initiating these relationships in every sense, it really barely comes to a head. It's resolved by a guitar at the, in the final scene, as Cody pointed out. Um, none of that really matters. Uh, some of the weird sort of misogyny in this movie, uh, which is sort of a, um, a relic of the source material, kind of also doesn't matter, although we can talk about it because of how much um, fun this movie is. And it is really fun. Like it, it really feels like a movie for teenagers in a way that very few movies do. Um, in some ways that, that hamper it, I think that the writing, as Cody noted, is really sharp at times. There are also times when they seem to remember that they're making a, like a weird kids movie. And so they like really, um, they phase down in a way that I don't really like, but there are, it does have the effect of making some of the lines that are sharp sting in a way that is almost unexpected in a way that I really enjoy. Um, so the, all of that is to say that, that I think this movie is very funny because it's such a relic of, as Jason, you noted the nineties, and it's such a relic of a very particular sort of appeal, um, which is that we wanted to, teenagers wanted to see cool teenagers being cool teenagers and have a story that felt like it was for them. And this story really feels like a movie for uh, a, a particular demographic in a way that doesn't speak down to them and isn't really trying to um, moralize. Uh, and I, I enjoyed that, even if I think some of the latent conservatism uh, therein is somewhat troubling. Uh, I don't think I like this as much as Valley Girl or certainly as much as Clueless, but uh, I still find it very canonical within the sort of Shakespeare in high school sense. And I think that it captures a Shakespeare in high school uh, element very well in the, in the sense that romance is just in the air and there's sort of like a, a heightened, uh, very hormonal um, feeling that uh, is is very apt for Shakespeare. And so you can see why high school is such a natural place for a story in a setting like this. And so I think it really works. Um, and it, it's very fun to watch, even if it's sort of a silly watch, I guess. Sure. Uh, Aaron, if we can hear you, you want to tell me what you think of this movie? Yeah. Um, I 
I think I generally agree for the most part uh, with everything that's been said before this. I will add a few things. I think the first one is that I, I generally don't like and connect with a lot of high school uh, movies, even kind of you know more comedic ones like this. I don't I don't have any sort of dark past regarding high school. I just it's a, a time of general awkwardness and growth. Well, it's I, super it's super weird. It's super weird that you would ever, ever say something like, I don't have a dark past in high school. Like, why? I'm just why saying you, you ever say a phrase further. like that I, without I having a dark past. I'm saying I don't have anything that you should be investigating from my high school days and uh, we should uh, move on. For, no, I like I, I look back on high school. I'm generally uh, fine with how it went. I think maybe even more than most people. But uh, high school fiction in general is something that I'm just generally it's just not my thing. Um, that being said, there have been, I think, a few uh, specifically like romantic comedies. Uh, I think Valley Girls, another good example um, that fit into this general genre that I think do some things that are pretty exciting. Um, you know, I think that uh, it's not like an uncommon thing within the genre, but I think I am always a little surprised by the edginess of some of the jokes in these movies. I think that right. the like the white Rastas bit is like genuinely very, very funny. Uh, and made even funnier by the fact that a lot of the soundtrack of this movie is ska music. Uh, you know, to the oh, point man. where like Save Ferris is the ones playing the prom, uh, and it's in the '90s in Seattle, so it rings yes. true. Yeah, it's just like, oh, there's a ska band play. Like when during the prom scene, the fact that there is a live band is already weird enough to my own high school experience. The fact that it is a ska band playing prom is so out there and weird to me uh but in such like a 90s way that i think it, it works uh i think that the taylor touched upon this earlier but i think that like the guidance counselor uh writing erotic fan fiction bit is so fucking good i think that uh allison janey uh who plays the guidance counselor is excellent in this movie if i have one like very large annoyance about this movie is that 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 does not really come around full circle in the end i would have loved two or three more recurring bits about allison janey looking for terms mm -hmm. for a throbbing member or whatever um so I, I i think i was surprised by the edginess of a lot of the jokes i will also say that one thing that i was very surprised by was just like how good and electric a lot of the cast is and even though he's maybe not the star of the show i think it's so clear how much of a star heath ledger was even in this movie uh this was the first american i think film credit that he had before this he had a bunch of australian films and short films this was his first like big American breakthrough. Um, and as someone who didn't grow up with this movie, uh, really before the dark Knight, the only thing of his that I was aware, you know, I was aware of like the brothers Grimm, and I had seen that I had seen a Knight's tale, uh, broke back mountain. I was aware of, I hadn't seen it at that point. Um, but I was aware of him as kind of this generally kind of like typecast as this pretty boy, I guess. And that was the image I always had at a, as a dipshit, young in on the internet um and i remember hearing a lot of people complain about the dark knight casting because they thought that he was too much of a pretty boy he was this romantic comedy guy and it's like so very clear from watching this movie just how good he is like he is so electric in this film certain scenes like the party scene uh is so good where he's he's kind of helping julia uh styles character katarina like kind of you know helping her as she's drunk and like navigating this party. It's just, it's so electric how he is in this film. Um, and it's so clear that like, man, this guy could have been the biggest guy in the world. Uh, obviously rest in peace. Uh, but that's, that's my general thoughts about the movie. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Excellent. I too enjoyed this movie quite a bit. I think that the only moment where I 
they're completely fell apart for me is where they try to insinuate on any level through any lens with any color grading that Heath Ledger is not a pretty man several times, including like the yes. focus of one of the, yeah, right. One of those scenes, I think they're in the bar and it's Joseph Gordon-Levitt and David Krumholtz approaching him and saying, she likes pretty boys. And then there's like this awkward pause. Like you think I'm not pretty. And I'm thinking nobody on earth sees this scene, even where he's like not makeuped up and maybe looking a little grimier. Nobody saw this and they're like, Ooh, yeah, there's some road work left to do here. <laughs> that was, that was goofy. <laughs> I will say, uh, when I first saw this movie and, you know, as a teenager, for some reason, I did not think he was a pretty boy. He was not, like, especially in this movie. In this movie specifically, I was like, nope, pass, don't care. It wasn't until I saw him in A Knight's Tale that I was like, yes, this is Heath Ledger, okay. Um, (laughs) I And I don't know if that's because the movie was telling me that he was not a pretty boy and I was just a kid at that point, but I totally sure, bought sure. it. I 100% really? bought it. I was like, yeah, he's like, he's kind of weird. He's kind of scary. He's like stabbing this frog in the middle of biology class really weird with his like pocket knife and not just the scalpel they're giving him. He freaks right. me out. Um, <laughs> uh it it might just be hindsight then, but like when I, you know, they do things to make him seem villainous. They put him in dark clothing and they give him the shaggy hair and everything and only let him tie it back later. But like it just, he just oozed constant sex appeal in this movie to, to my eyes. Like he's not, he never doesn't look like he's trying, like somebody's trying to make him attractive. I don't know if that was anybody else's experience, but that like, and it might just, like I said, be, be uh, hindsight where I know what a heartthrob he like came to be perceived as in Hollywood and how he ended up being cast more, uh, more and more on his looks. Uh, and then, you know, it can, uh, confluence with his skill uh, as well, but like he was known for being a pretty guy and just seeing in this movie when people are like, when it's a joke that he's supposed to be not attractive. I almost, I almost thought who, who directing this movie could say like, now we got to make him look ugly. Now we got to make the characters think he's ugly and then just drop the bit. As soon as they realize he's not, you're not going to be able to make this guy look grody. Yeah, I, I think that there's a bit of a like a sexy librarian trope, you know what I mean? Like, oh, girl removes uh, glasses and all of a sudden she's a 10 out of 10. I think that's kind of here where it's like, this dude is clearly attractive. Like, clearly he starts dressing a little better by the end of the movie. Uh, but like, I think from the beginning, it's like, oh, this guy's obviously a hunk. Uh, I mean, he looks like the Vitruvian yeah. man. Like, he is he is like the, the European ideal uh, to a certain extent in a weird way. Um, but like, I think part of it is that I'm, I'm trying to think of like who would have been considered like heartthrobs back then. And I think, you know, Titanic was like 97 and like looking at like Leonardo DiCaprio is like this blonde, like much more boyish kind of, uh, person who is seen as like the very attractive leading man. I'm, I think that maybe it's just like, just kind of a, a timing thing with how Heath Ledger is looking in this movie and what the standard was Mm -hmm. back then. Right. We should also point out that the reputation that you're describing, Jason, that Heath Ledger was a heartthrob was very much what he was known for at this point. So the director would have known that I like, there is an, there is a great irony there and it sort of gets at what 
movies like this and in general are doing right there's like a little bit of a valley girl thing here where it's like the text of the movie and what the movie is actually visually depicting are at conflict with one another they know that the two hottest people in this movie are going to get together they know that you want that and you they know that you want those people to be hot throughout the movie and they're completely fine with that because that's what the movie is actually about and i think that that's all fine and it totally works in the sort of like teenage fantasy way you know what I mean? It's just like they want a flavor of bad boy, pretty boy. And so they're they're depicting that, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's yeah. a it's a type of teenage fantasy. Um it works really well. And like Aaron said, it's it's so bolstered by the fact that uh Heath Ledger is amazing in this. Um Julia Stiles also is, although uh I think she is more harmed by the script than he is. But mm-hmm. that's uh something else. Well there was it gives me a chance to bring up uh, from Roger Ebert's review, such as he is uh, perceived. Um, but there was a line in there and it was maybe near the end. He says, sometimes it's a mistake to have acting this charming. The characters become so engaging and spontaneous. We noticed how they're trapped in the plot. And uh, I That's only read that brilliantly read. Yeah. I only, yeah, I only read that after seeing the movie. Uh, and I, I saw this movie when I was a kid, but I didn't remember anything except the bleachers scene. Um, so like looking back at it with, through that lens of like, you know, it's, it's a movie that serves a very particular audience and a very particular like time, but it is, it really allows in a weird way. It highlights just how good the actors are by like how they struggle with a script very that much doesn't so. always serve them. Yeah. Script and directing that don't always serve them. Um, yeah. I, I still really enjoyed the way that they played that those those roles and those characters, but uh, it does like when you have people like Julia Stiles and um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Heath Ledger acting out these very fairly stock characters that don't have incredible character development. I mean, charming and you know very by by the numbers, but not in, not like incredibly compelling at times. Um, that they still manage to make themselves distinct and stick out in those roles. It is kind of wild watching this movie, uh, and this is maybe ties to maybe the weakness of some of the framing here, but it is wild that if, if you saw this right when it came out and then you were to know in the future that the person who would be the most successful from this movie, apart from maybe Julia Stiles, is Joseph Gordon-Levitt, <laughs> considering that he is just he's just washed by every single other person in this movie. Every single other person does such a... And he's, he's not like doing a bad job. I think part of it is the framing of this film is that he is a uh, he's this new high school student who transfers to this new school, is immediately struck with love for this very popular and attractive mm-hmm. young woman, right? Um, but we know pretty much nothing about him like he's he's really only in a very small amount of this movie compared to Heath Ledger like the movie quickly pivots to Ledger and then kind of doesn't go back to Joseph Gordon-Levitt except for kind of wrapping things up at the end and I I wonder how much of that framing is intentional and how much of that is just kind of realizing like Heath Ledger is really the cool one here Julia Stiles is the interesting one here this is what we should focus on. We need this framing device at the start. And like, we don't need to know anything about Joseph Gordon-Levitt's past. We don't need to know about his other schools. We, we don't even know what hobbies he's into, right? He's just into learning French so that he can, he can try and date this one woman, right? Yeah, I think to your point or to what you were trying to concede there a little bit, I think it, it must be intentional in ways because he is sort of like the little troublemaking cherub classic in, um, in Shakespearean literature who just flits in 
is the source of the plot and then just kind of like I won't say gets shuffled off like he's served, he's there, but he's not like developed in really crazy strong ways. Um, but then like this being a romantic comedy where there are multiple characters, it kind of needs to come back. I haven't read Taming of the Shrew in a long time, but I know that that character has a bigger role than he does in in this movie to an extent, but has about the same level of importance, I think, just like the inciting character that then all these other characters are just brought together by I like does that sound does that sound about right taylor i mean i think so i was gonna say i really agree that he is essentially the catalyst for everything when i was watching this again and actually like trying to look at it with a more critical eye since generally when i watch it it's brainless um the first thing i thought of when he comes on screen they're in the courtyard he sees bianca is just like he is Tom from 500 Days of Summer in this movie. Oh, wow. Oh, Lord. Or, like, <laughs> this, is, this is high school Tom, um, where there is nothing about him that is original or about himself. He is focused entirely on this one person that he does not know um, and defends her with like literally no, no, no context, no nothing. Um, and so it, I mean, it makes me glad that they kind of drop him for the most part, because it's really like, what is, what is there for him to say at this point? Um, you already know that he doesn't really care about anything in depth, um, about other people. And he's just there kind of to, to pine after a woman and that's it. So, um, yeah, I definitely catalyst. And like you guys were saying, not really worth any more time than they give him, especially when you do have the likes of Heath Ledger and Julia Stiles being far more interesting, um, both in, you know, their ability with acting and also just the characters themselves. Uh, that's, that's a really fascinating point. I especially love the Tom from 500 days of summer comparison that almost redeems him in my eyes. Like I, I had never thought, although it seems obvious now that they were essentially, creating this cypherous uh, plot introductory character, or I understood that, but the fact that they shuffle him off to the extent that they do makes a lot more sense to me now, because one of the heart of my criticisms of this movie is that I really fucking hate that character. And I hate the whole plot line. Uh, I hate that he's like a proto 1999 white knight character who essentially demands the attention and love of his, the object of his affections because of how well he's treated her. And then she just goes along with it and decides that actually that's, that's correct. This person who has been lavishing me with attention is in fact worthy of my affections and is entitled to them in some capacity. That's something that's always deeply, deeply bothered me about this movie. And there's something about specifically uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt being this sort of like clear audience stand in for this like dweeby, like quote unquote good boy. There's this terrible line where Heath Ledger's character tells him that he's twice the man that the model is. And it's like, there is absolutely no basis in the reality of the film to establish that we know nothing about this kid except that he's kind of a shitty cypherous projector and it's like how is he in any capacity different or better than the model except that the text is trying to tell us that without actually establishing it so sorry to rant about it that's just always bothered me a whole bunch about this movie <laughs> i feel like that's accurate but at the same time when again have watched this over and over i think the main point 
I think that they do eventually get to the point where it's like, we don't care about him. Like, obviously, there are issues with him and his, you know, his need for attention from this one woman. Um, But like, I feel like there are points where they kind of make fun of that. And he's always kind of being challenged by um, by his friend. Why can't I think of his friend's name? Fuck. Um, Oh, wait, am I supposed to say that? Can I? Sorry. You get, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, Michael, Michael Ekman. Ekman yes. played by David like, he's kind of always there to be his, you know, reality check, I think. And I think they do a good job with that throughout Very the true. movie. Um, not just with, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, but, you know, other um, sort of tropey things that they do. They kind of always challenge it right away afterwards. Like, um I guess this is kind of tangential, but, um, you know, the, the two girls, Julia Stiles and her friend are walking through the courtyard. She rips down the prom, uh, poster and her friend is like, well, why not? Like, what's wrong with going to this? And she's like, we're making a statement. She's like, oh, well, we're always making these statements. You know, there, there's always this criticism that follows the tropey thing that they're doing. And I think that's another reason why I kind of come back to it. And I find a little bit more than just the basic, uh, you know, teen movie shit that they normally do, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I especially appreciate that the, the movie does a pretty good job of also critiquing uh, Katarina's worldview at the beginning. Like, it's very clear that her rebellious uh, kind of attitude is is obviously a front, right, that she's putting out. And, and there's kind of this interior that you kind of learn later on in the film. Um, I think the movie does a, a really good job kind of uh, tearing some of that down. I think the character of Mr. Morgan, who is the, uh, the black English teacher uh, who challenges her at the beginning as she's talking about Sylvia Plath and whatnot. And eventually, That's a fantastic scene. Yeah, and he just brings up like, he brings up her, her class and race as like a way to say like, hey, all right, lady, like, you're making good points, but maybe there's some other perspectives here that you haven't considered as well. One of the um, Yes. I love every scene with Mr. Morgan was very good. He gets Daryl Mitchell is the, the actor. He kills all of that. It's very good. Um, we had talked about this a little bit in uh, our Valley Girl episode way back when, but I think Taylor's right in the sense that this movie is kind of doing what that movie is doing, which is poking fun at the idea of having established and entrenched worldviews as a teenager in the first place, right? Like there's a deep malleability to each of these characters in terms of uh, point of view and interests. And um, there's a sense that everything that they're doing is affected on some level or another by how they want to be perceived. That's very obvious in the case of both of the main characters who are these sort of like fuck authority rebel without a causes that literally, don't have causes um, except what's established by tragic backstories later on uh, to reveal just the depths to how affected that is. And the fact that that's malleable and affected does sort of redeem in a sense, the, uh, the, um, the sort of deep superficiality of the relationships depicted here, because there's a sense in which that's what teen, being a teenager is, is your sort of stumbling performance style, malleability style towards something that ends up being who you really are. And in the, um, in the meantime, you're, you're forming these relationships that may or may not be based on anything real, but may or may not be based on real things that you can't really admit to yourself. Um, and those things will sort of, come to pass or come to show 
in the the sort of stumbling. Uh, that's all very classic teenage stuff. Um, it all works pretty well. I I shouldn't be as hard on it. There's just something about the fact that this movie does end in a very traditional place, especially the fact that Heath Ledger's characters, Patrick, his transgressions are so uh, go so unremarked upon. They're treated as such a small thing. Uh, and they're so quickly brushed under the the table, which again, I understand, like we want them to be together. They're clearly right for each other because the movie tells us that. Um, but it's, it's a similar thing to Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character where it's just like, I can feel the movie being like, look, just don't worry about it. Like, let's just move past it already. And it's like, ah, like there's something, I would like some more cynicism or some more criticism, but I understand that that's not the kind of movie that this is. And that's not really a problem for me, I guess. It it does the very economical thing, which is it, it doesn't build up a character that you root for in Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character. Instead, it does a really, really good and more enjoyable and comedic job of building up a character to root against, which is right. Andy Keegan's kind of pretty boy model character. Uh, I think there is probably more time just more camera time on him over the course of this film than Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character. And pretty much all that time is spent building him up as a person who you say, oh, that guy fucking sucks, right? Like, we want to root against that character, uh, which also ties into Katarina's uh, backstory herself, right? Um, And it's, again, it's not like, it does kind of bug me that Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character is not a character that we actually really care about. But I think that, you know, it does kind of work well enough uh, in the moment that maybe you don't think about it too much. Sure. No, definitely. Um, I think y'all did a pretty great job talking about the, like the benefits and the detriments of like, not just this screenplay in particular, but these types of movies in general that are so reliant on character tropes and like a time and a place for a specific character or like a specific uh, like relationship between characters to like carry forth the meat and potatoes of a story. Uh, and then like you have the side dish characters like um, what was it? Uh, yeah. The Joey Donner played by Andrew Keegan. Uh, we shouted out uh, Krumholtz uh, a little bit ago and I wanted to make sure he got his fair shake because maybe one of my favorite things about the Joseph Gordon-Levitt character is that while he's moping uh, about uh, sad boy Gordon Levitt, he does have this foil in uh, Michael Ekman, played by David, Cr- David Crumholtz, who basically j- he has to carry forth, I feel like comparatively, so little of the actual story. And this movie does that thing where you just give this character jokes to kind of fill in the blanks. And uh, his line readings and his performance, I don't know how much of it was like improv or what, uh, but that really worked for me. Um, like, I think somebody mentioned something uh, about like looking uh, back at this movie uh, and like if you had watched this and like said that the most successful person coming out of this movie would be Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It's just like I would have been shocked that to learn that like David Crumholtz didn't have more big vehicles um, because I feel like he had a lot of talent on display here. Um, just like the scenes that killed like he, him like taking care of his eyebrows before the party, his like hands on his hips, hopping uh, dance move. Um, and like the fact that they were able to get a clean take of Crumholtz where he's uh, not cracking the fuck up at the act of a dick and nutsack being drawn on his face is sure like, course legitimately one of the most impressive things I've ever seen, not just in movies, but like maybe in my life. Um, so shout out to David Crumbolds. Um, This is just a little point, but his relationship with, um, 
uh, with Kat's best friend, um, whose name I can't remember. Uh, it's the the girl who's obsessed with Shakespeare. Do you know is her it, name? Is it Mandela? Oh. Am I making that up? I, I don't know. That's Mandela, yes. Mandela, Kat's okay. only close friend. Yes. Right, yeah. Her whole thing is that she's obsessed with Shakespeare. He has like an incredibly, incredibly brief C or D plot where he ends up taking her to the prom just by getting her a dress that looks like a Victorian England or a Shakespearean England dress and taking the the like slightest sort of notice of her interest and in what she likes. And she sort of goes along with him, not because they have a great romance, but just because she basically appreciates being um, catered to in this way. It's, it's weirdly emblematic and foil like to the relationships in this whole movie, which is just to say that like the movie's thesis on relationships seems to just be like, especially when you're a teenager, like the most important thing you can do is take a genuine interest in who the other person is trying to be at that time. And like, when you think about how all three of the main relationships that we see established in this movie happen that way, uh, where it is bad to deny one's striving towards self-determination and to instead want them under other terms. And it is good to take some sort of notice and interest in who they are trying to be. Uh, that relationship sort of functions as a sounding board for what you want to take away from this in general. And it actually kind of worked for me, which is interesting because it's so funny how brief it is. It's like literally two 30-second interludes or something. Yeah, I didn't get the same thing. Uh, from that, but that does, it's, it's nice to use that as a, as a, like a cipher, as a, as a bit of a, a lens through which to look at the other relationships of the movie, because of course, like central to it is, uh, it's central to the whole movie is the, like how, um, Bianca and Kat are sort of like performing do two different, uh, forms, I guess, of, of femininity, right? There's, uh, you know, the very popular and, uh, sought after young woman. And then there's the sort of rebellious, uh, expression of, of, you know, uh, anti, anti patriarchal tendencies and all that. And it, it puts those center stage as what the characters are. And every time that they, um, that they like every time that they, I guess they're, they're forced to defend them, I guess, as, as approaches to expressing themselves. Um, and that's just like, the way that you bring up that store, that specific, very tiny little bit of a of a relationship that's budding there, uh, to to like to explain that a little bit, right? To put it in context of these are two people who are just kind of accepting who the other is and like ex showing a real interest in what the other has done instead of you know these weird underdeveloped backstabbings and dark workings behind the scene of, of, you know, various people, uh, I guess working, you know, these, these inner machinations of the plot that happen behind the scenes. Um, and they're just brought up to the front of here's the moral, apply it to the rest of the relationships in this movie, rather than taking this as a standalone. I think, I think that's really true. You know, I, and that's something that, I believe is what sticks out for me so much about this movie versus your classic. I, I don't really consider this a classic teen movie from the nineties, to be honest. When I think of classic teen movies from the nineties, I think she's uh, or what not. She's a man. Um, she's all that, uh, you know, sure. the, the dorky nerdy girl is essentially has this new um, persona forced upon her uh, that, 
you know, she, yes, eventually kind of takes advantage of, sort of enjoys the attention that she starts getting once she's all different. Um, But everybody, all of the relationships within this movie, I feel like, are driven by the characters themselves rather than, um, rather than like outside pressure. So like you have Kat who is so staunch in how much of a bitch she is, you know, she owns it. She is our heinous bitch queen and she thinks it's great. She doesn't give a shit. I really truly believe that. Um, and she doesn't want to compromise, but in the end, like flexibility just winds up being the better option because, she is then able to relate to her sister better. You know, they kind of come together and see each other more as they are versus the things that they keep trying to project um, to each other and to everybody else. And eventually they wind up just being able to chill the fuck out, um, which in that's just not how I see the classic teen movie. Um, everything seems to come from outside pressure and it seems like these characters develop on their own based on their experiences that they're having throughout the movie. Um, but yeah, I, that's, I think that's a good point. Oh, uh, yeah. I think that that something that separates this in a really good way, in my opinion, from a lot of teenage movies is just that it feels like really categorically non-judgmental. Um, it like all of the, there's no purity of relationship in this movie, like very pointedly, everybody who is interested in a relationship is almost primarily interested in having a relationship, right? Because they're teenagers and that's what they want. Or in the, in the like literal textual sense, there is an ulterior motive in the sense that Patrick at first is literally getting paid to date Kat. Um, meanwhile, Kat sort of like pretends she's not interested in the things that she is, but the fact that she, uh, represses that only makes it sort of more moving and powerful as we see in the party when she gets drunk. Um, and you know, Cameron James, despite eventually ostensibly, um, falling for Bianca truly, he is he's primarily interested in her because she's super attractive and hot. This movie is like comfortable with that. It's like fine, right? It's like, it's okay to be a teenager and to want those teenage things, superficial as they may be. It's sort of a similar thing to like a thing like Clueless, which gets to a, a fundamentally sort of non-judgmental place, which is something that I think teenage movies really desperately need. And Taylor, like you said, it like creates a space for teenagers to really like come of age on their own rather than having morals foist upon them by uh, outside pressure or outside influences. Um, in fact, those outside influences or pressures are lampooned in the form of their father, who is seen as this ridiculous out-of-touch person, right? Uh, who's played very, very well, by the way. Um, he, he's very funny. Uh, Larry Miller? Yeah, thank you. Yes, Larry, Larry Miller. Miller. Very good. He's great in this, right? Like Walter Stratford. He's just like so overplayed. He's a... Uh, um, he de- delivers babies and like that's why he's seen as being so overprotective to his daughters is he doesn't want to see them in his emergency room which is very funny I, like again this movie has so much sharp writing going for it i think um but yeah i just uh i think that it gets to a non-judgmental place which really sands down some of the annoyances that i have with it i i think i agree like i said it's uh, i forget what uh aaron was saying specifically but it is sort of that like there are these expectations that the characters have put upon them. Oh yeah. You were calling back to the scene with, was it Mr. Morgan, the English teacher who like calls out cat. Oh, yeah. yeah. On, on some of her performative 
you know, social justice activism type thing. We don't see her taking meaningful action toward any like meaningful change or, or activism, but uh, she's always, she's reading bell hooks and she's in the feminist bookstore and all these other things that are generally good habits to have and good mindsets to, to nurture, but she's not acting on them. She's, uh, you know, adopting yet another form of, uh, of, of self-expression. Right. And it is only with, excuse me, some retrospect, some hindsight that you can see, okay, so that was another, that was another thing, another, another uh, face, another persona, so to speak, that she was putting on to, um, to perform before the world. Uh, and then by the end, hopefully, whether or not it's gotten there, but by the end, hopefully you've just accepted that who she is with, um, with Patrick is who she really wants to be her. She wants to be herself. She wants to be somebody who can uh, unabashedly love another person that she can show real emotion, that she can accept things gen- sometimes for how they are, instead of always being a problem student sort of thing. Um, it again, whether or not that's uh, like <laughs> universally karmically correct thing to, to say about the world and, and the people in it, it is something like I see only looking back at the movie after having seen it is like, okay, so it was, it was trying to put these pieces up for us to uh, like compress those ideas and then, and then like see how they were flawed to begin with. Does that, does that make any sense at all? It's, it's interesting, right. That in sort of emblematic of this movie's dual goals that I think that maybe the most uh, clear expression of the movie's theme and overall moral happens during that scene I was referring to when Patrick takes uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character Cameron aside and talks to him and it doesn't really ring true. But during that speech, he says, um, don't let anybody ever tell you that you're not worthy of the things you want. And that's really what this movie is trying to get across. And in fact, it seems to be saying that the right relationships for you, malleable though your personality, malleable though your viewpoint may be as a teenager, what a good relationship is, is somebody that validates that it validates what you want and who you want to be and your forms of self-expression, right? Like that's epitomized at the end of the movie when Julia Stiles character says that she wants, um, Kat says she wants a guitar and Patrick buys her a guitar, right? It's like, she says she wants to be in a cool feminist girl band. So Patrick helps make that clear. And in doing so is validating that expression of who she is, is, is telling her that he values that about her, doesn't want her to change and actually likes that about her. Right. And that's what this movie's thesis on relationships and being a good person is, is just taking an interest in and validating the form of self-expression that somebody chooses. And that's enough. Even if those forms of self-expression are ultimately superficial because you're a teenager, that's okay. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think like the actual way that that quote ends is the things you, you deserve, not just want, but deserve. Oh, gotcha. And it's, it's a, no, it's like, I, I think your statement holds true. And just to take it a step further, it's like, that is a term specifically that indicates, uh, sort of like what the world will give to you in, re- in, in relation for what you give to the world. This is getting way too semiotic for actual use, but just like, when I heard that, it kind of reads like a little bit of a cheesy one-liner, obviously written as a bit of a cheesy one-liner, but through the lens that we're looking at it right now about how these people interact with the world and how they present to it, it makes a little bit of difference to me, like looking at it through that, uh, looking at it that way of what you are giving into the world and what you expect to get out of it um, should be wholly of your own, like you should be wholly confident in it, right? Uh, present those things, assuming that you will get, um, 
like the things that you that you believe you deserve out of them. Uh, pretty pretty far down the rabbit hole there. Uh, so I uh, right after we were done watching this, um, friend of the pod Seth Zarati and new uh, brand new Aaron uh, Seth Zarati. Hey. Um, yeah pointed out that it's uh that the movie is way gaggier than he remembered he had seen it uh previously um i know it's often so often through its side characters that it like brings in just a, a shot of humor that's sometimes incongruous it often feels like the joke is going a little bit too long or a little bit too far maybe it's too explained um but it got me thinking about the tertiary characters in this movie the you know there's the soccer coach who gets shot in the ass uh there is unfortunately tertiary is Allison Janney as principal perky um there uh is the <laughs> uh what's his name G- barry barry lovenstein or something like that the the yuppie club head who, uh, who kicks out michael yeah um bogey lowenstein uh, i think bogey his name is Lowenstein. his name's bogey because go. he plays golf get it there we go there we go but it's so often through those characters that like the shots of humor are brought in and i'm just curious about to the group and we'll see how this works out with uh, Zencaster's sort of, um, it's not super conducive to a group uh, solicitation of answers. But like, what do we think of those tertiary characters? I found myself charmed by the way that they are sort of like little peeks at how the rest of the school, at how the rest of the world, and maybe how the rest of Seattle sees the inner workings of this like really stupidly personal uh, drama going on. Like, again, to go back to Mr. Morgan, at the beginning of the movie, he's right to be very skeptical of anything that Kat says because he knows that it's just going to be confrontational. It's going to be combative. It's going to be against the status quo and it's going to make his job harder. And then by the end of the movie, when she wants to read her sonnet, he's like, oh, here we go again. And internally, and it was just a stupid, it's another way that the movie, that movies just tend to lead you on. Internally, I was like, well, why is he saying that? She's clearly changed so much. And then I'm like, oh, he wasn't part of this. <laughs> he's a teacher and he has no idea what the hell's going on between these kids. All he knows that they, is that they sit down, they learn, and they leave. Uh, so, like, I found the tertiary characters in this movie, and I'm, I guess I'm defining that as like non, um, like related to the main plot. I found them charming, uh, little peeks into how the rest of the world might see the story of this movie. I don't know if anybody else has has that that, um, I guess zany and any. I don't want to call it zany, but to to overthought an opinion of it, or if it's just like some of your favorite bits from those characters. Yeah, I I think I agree with that take Jason. I don't have uh, a lot to say to like uh ex- uh like expand upon that other than just like the the fact that what I got from those glimpses at those characters were like skewerings of exaggerated uh like traits or uh, just you know Mr. Morgan for example being someone who is antagonistic towards his students, but also he's like right about everything. Um, the fact that Mrs. Berkey is like, she has, you know, she wants her privacy, wants her students to leave her alone, but it's to write, you know, uh, a sex novel, uh, whatever you, you call that. Um, she's an author. Um, I would even like go as far as to say, like situationally, those characters are put in environments that allows, that like those dynamics to to blossom and i think about the uh not the courtyard but the football field the fact that all of all of the sports all of the sports at the school take place like their practices take place in the same like 50 square yard uh area um so just having all of those vibes together having bogey hitting golf balls and like knocking 
uh, the soccer coach or whoever that was in the gut. Um, so even when they, these characters aren't speaking, by the time they're they're established, uh, you, you know, we we can see them in these environments and we get the physical comedy as well. Yeah, I uh, I think that. I had an inverse relationship with it, I guess, that you did, Jason. I, I saw these characters as um, opportunities to look at the wider world building and understand that we're in sort of an arch, overly romanticized, silly version of a world. They always struck me as sort of, uh, and I, I'll, I'll be interested in Taylor's opinions on this, but they, they struck me as particularly like uh, a teenager's perception of those character roles and, and sort of like a... it. it that was where it became very clear to me that this movie was made to appeal to teenagers and also to sort of uh, signpost for us that we're entering a world where sort of like high drama and funny, like quirky romance is the uh, order of the day. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. You know, I don't think I ever really thought too deeply about those tertiary characters like, um, the, you know, the soccer coach, Miss Perky, um, I definitely did see them essentially as, you know, methods of dropping in some, some comedy, some really, really good comedy. Um, because I, th- I think I said this right at the beginning, like you can't go wrong with Alice and Janney as the, um, as the guidance counselor, you know, she's, She's there and supposedly supposed to be helping these kids and literally kicking them out after two seconds of being in her office um, just so she can kind of rib them a little bit and then get back to what she really wants to be doing, which is writing a romance novel. Um, and, and that's like the first scene, right? That is the first scene. That is, you know, Cameron walks in to her office. She asks him about, says like, oh, are you an army brat? And as he answers her, says, like, that's fine. That's enough. Like, we don't <laughs> listen to you. I don't care. Um, you know, your experience here is going to be like your experience everywhere else. Everyone has shit for brains as they throw something at the window. Um, and to me, yeah, it is just, it's it's a way to kind of um, just start that comedy. When it comes to Mr. Morgan, like you said, like, I can't remember which one of you was talking about it, but just the way that he um, kind of embodies the way that kids see their teachers and see the people um, that are running their classes. I, one thing that stands out for me about him specifically is just that you don't get teachers, like teachers represented in that way in other teen movies, I don't think. Um, Being as brash and confrontational right back to the character like the main characters um you don't often see a teacher really challenging your main character normally they're the good kids normally they're um you know the yeah that's a really good point right um plus i just i love the pointing out the the uh uh cultural appropriation and the white feminist issues right away so that just throws a good, um, they're thinking about things a little bit harder than you would expect. And subverting your expectations a little bit. I was surprised how many times the, uh, the white Rastas came back as a bit, just easily like four or five times. Every time it came into the classroom, there was like some 
like one-off line that they had that I thought was really funny. Um, I had to ask, because as someone who grew up in St. Cloud, Minnesota, famous St. Cloud, Minnesota, uh, I grew up, there's a part of this movie at the very beginning where Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character is being shown around the school and he's, it's like the classic, uh, like high school movie thing where it's like, here are the nerds, here are the jocks. And, and there's, it, it weirdly like devolves into more and more like weirder subgroups. Like here are the coffee kids, which is, I don't quite know what that is. I thought that was almost a parody. Yes, it it had to be. And there's one where they walk by a bunch of people wearing like cowboy outfits, like swinging lassos. And, uh, the character who's showing Joseph Gordon-Levitt around says like, yeah, those are the cowboys. Even I think he says something like, even though they've never right. been around a horse in their life or something like that. The closest they've gotten is McDonald's. Yes. And the that reminded me that there's like a bunch of like dipshits at my high school when I was growing up that like St. Cloud, Minnesota, that like drove giant trucks with Confederate flags on the back. And I was my thought was always like, dude, we are in minute. We are literally the most north you can go in the continental United States. Uh, and like. That's like it seemed like such like a weird, and I was like, wait, did all high schools have these assholes? Like, I don't know if that was just me extrapolating something weird from that or what, but I thought that was quite a, uh, I don't know, funny, funny aside. No, yes, you're right. They do exist everywhere. And Aaron, I feel betrayed because the one thing you promised is that you would not have any dark stories or anything to say about your time in high school and you literally are the first person to bring up your time in high school i was not a member of the high school white supremacist club those were other asshole i'm one of them literally wore cowboy boots with spurs i'm not joking (laughs) a guy like that in my high school giddy up um yeah i like i think i think the position as like levity and comedy uh that taylor is bringing up that they're just like this the tertiary characters are this way to bring in just some levity into scenarios that were becoming more and more melodramatic as the movie went on is is like correct i guess i choose to read a little bit more into it than that um maybe just to torture myself if it doesn't pan out or if so, there's something that doesn't support it but like i guess the first time i, I thought about it was um was when there's like <laughs> The, the golf team, again, headed up by bogey, uh, like just the whitest of white yuppie looking guys says, all right, fellas, grip it and rip it. And is just established as this really fun, goofy, pick onable character who is only there like to be dunked on constantly. Um, and then later with uh, Nigel and the Bree, that's I forgot that that line was from this movie, but I still kind of I quote it to myself every so often. Um, I, I just really liked how it builds that cast without having to build that cast, I guess. But, you know, a casualty of that, of course, as we brought up multiple times, is Alice and Janney, where she is like clearly a character that could have served more of a purpose of in this show. movie. Sorry? Star of the show. She is the star of the yeah. show. Yeah. And, really? and it just feels like she was a little bit tossed under the bus. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's, it's basically really good world building, right? And, and sort of, I hate to keep bringing up Clueless, but it did remind me of that, right? Where it's it's just like, this. these are characters that, that are there to show you that, like, this isn't just about the teenagers. This is just a fun, sort of subversive, interesting world that we're a part of. For sure. Um, Taylor, I want to kind of leave it open for you. What are some of the parts that always get you when you come back to this movie? What What really makes you think, man, this is a damn good movie? <laughs> oh, God. So, essentially, when I think about this movie... I. As we've been talking about this, I've realized that the the bulk of what I focus on every time I watch it, and the thing that really gets me every single time, is 
the relationship between Kat and her sister, um, Kat, who she is as herself, um, and just how the two very opposed women work their way through this whole story, um, that winds up kind of bringing them together in a way that you, I don't think you really expect, you know, it starts off the very first, well, the very first scene in the movie is Kat driving down the street, listening to, I don't give a damn about my reputation. And she pulls up next to this car of teeny bop girls listening to one week. Um, and it, it sets you up to think like, this is going to be a clash between these two types of women. Um, and in the end, I don't think that's really what it is. I think it, um, I think it starts off making you think that way, but by the end, it really is, um, excuse me, <clears throat> it really is, you know, it demonstrates how, oh, what am I trying to say? I mean, it's it's the theme that we've been talking about this whole time that, you know, the biggest thing is just to risk, like, appreciate people as they are. And so I really like that, you know, Kat can hold on to her, um, to her values in a way and can still kind of be stubborn and can still be, um, you know, a shrew. But in the end, she winds up being closer to her sister. She winds up kind of having this group of friends that she didn't expect in her sister, in Cameron. And now she's got this boyfriend that she really didn't have to change for, um, which is unexpected in, in the teen movie realm. Um, and it's almost, you know, she's, she's kind of celebrated for that. I think I know that there, obviously there are issues with misogyny and the way that characters are written and, and everything, but I don't know. I think, I think the growth that she shows shows that you can grow without losing that part of yourself that you feel defines you. Um, and I guess that was kind of maybe a big thing for me in high school. Maybe I related to her. I definitely related to her. Um, so that's, that's the biggest thing for me is just the way that Kat gets to develop and still be this lovable woman despite or because of the way that she's presented. Yeah, that's really well said. I, I'm thinking about the, the crux of their argument and how Kat's growth seems to be that, that there's a, there's a place where her own sort of performance or her own need to manifest in a certain way ends up creating this frustrating conflict where she thinks she's protecting her sister. And her sister says that, you know, you're contradicting yourself because you didn't tell me about this, this guy b because, um, you, uh, you wanted me to make my own decisions, but you're not letting me make my own decisions. And she points out that flaw in, um, Kat's thinking, and it is sort of a hypocritical flaw. And that's sort of the crucial thing that lets Kat sort of like, like you had said earlier, Taylor, uh, chill out a little bit. And so there's this sense in which it's like coming of age is sort of, it's, it's not that you have to sacrifice what you think is definitive to you or not that you have to make those, th you have to reconcile with the fact that those things are somehow performative or illusionary or the fact that they're performative makes them illusionary. But it does mean that you have to be uh, willing to let other people do the same thing. You can't, you can't uh, put yourself on a pedestal or start to believe in your own bullshit too much, maybe. Um, 
And if you can do that, if you can be a little bit more forgiving and a little bit unjudgmental, then in fact, you can keep all of those things that uh, define you and they will not, not only not be illusionary, but they will actually be um, something that can be loved and respected by other people. Because as Jason said, you are putting out what you're getting back. And I think that that's a really good point. I agree. I think that like we've come to a read on what the movie is saying about like how these two characters reconcile their own performances to the world. Um, it's an interesting uh, like left turn or like little tiny tweak to the plot that um, uh, Kat and Bianca's mom is gone. They refer to her as she left. So I'm assuming she uh, and her dad got divorced. Um, but that, that is like, that creates a rift between them and how they're like allowed sort of to perform uh, their own versions of femininity to the world and how they're uh, allowed to self-identify in the absence of a strong um, uh, female role model. Uh, I Maybe that's opening a can of worms that we really shouldn't open at minute 67 of the podcast, but um, I wanted to, I guess, just tack that on as, as, a, as, a, as a point of, of order. Um, I wanted to open the floor one last time to ideas and thoughts before I just have a couple of things that like, I just really small, tiny things that I really liked about the movie that I don't want to leave recording without saying, but anybody else got longer thoughts or any caps before we, before we head into that? I mean, I'll, I'll throw it out there. I will say, you know, like I said, uh, cat is definitely, um, a character that I have related to personally, whether or not that is a good or bad thing. But um, one thing that I did notice coming back and watching this movie and reflecting a little bit harder on it as opposed to, you know, just mindlessly watching like I normally do um, is that, you know, when I was younger, when I would watch this movie, I would be like, yeah, I'm totally a bitch. Like I'm, I'm hard. I don't care about anything and I'm going to stick to being that way because it's easier and you know what, like that's fine. But now that I have watched it again and have seen, have kind of thought a little bit more about it, I do see that it does rep and this whole thing, it's what we've been talking about this whole time, growth um, and the ability to grow and the ability to, you know, still hold on to your values. Um, I think that it did teach me as I was growing and as I kind of like grew up hanging on to this movie that like, you don't have to, it's, it's kind of like what you just said, Jason, like you don't have to stay a certain way to, you know, be yourself or maintain your values. You can still be flexible in who you are and how you function while still maintaining that. Um, and so that is, that has been really huge for me, at least watching this movie and having related to Kat for so long for a huge part of my life. Uh, I think my my kind of last. No, I think we've actually touched upon most of the things that I had made note of while watching this movie. I think the only thing I have left that kind of ties into the last point, but is a, it just a real big nitpick that I know I shouldn't do? But there is the the main plot of this movie for the first half of this film is Joseph Gordon Levitt. In order to date Bianca, needs to find someone to date Julia Stiles' character. And there's like a montage of scenes where people are just time after time saying, no, I've heard she's really mean. I'm not going to go on a date with her. And it shows 
jocks. It shows nerds. It shows like theater kids. It shows every single person in the school. And this movie just dramatically underestimates the horniness of high school boys. It is just on another level that like this movie's in conceit for the first half is like this. I heard this girl's really mean. Won't go on a date with her. Again, uh, yeah. Again, it's, yeah. it's almost like it's almost like parody. Almost like what I was just saying about um, Heath Ledger, and like the audience is always going to be horned for this guy. And yet, we have like the the plot dictates in this moment that they all pretend that we all just fall into a fugue state where Heath Ledger is not is not an attractive guy. And it's very much the same thing, I think. And all like it borders on you couldn't you couldn't figure it out for sure unless you spoke to the writers. But it borders on being parody, right? Where it's like Julia Stiles is an attractive woman and all of it's these self-aware, right? Right. All of these prepubescent males are almost certainly would almost certainly be clamoring all over just to get a date with anybody. Uh, and yet again, we have to have the montage of, of people who don't want to that. That's what it was saying to me was like, well, we're all, we all, we all realize that this wouldn't make that this wouldn't be a real world problem. So let's go full fantasy with it. <laughs> You know, and one thing I did notice again, too, um, especially when it comes to her cat being characterized as like so unthinkably horrible. Um, I think she's kind of she's kind of validated in some of her reactions to things, to be honest. I mean, the first time you ever even really see her be mean is when Michael drives his uh, like little go-kart, like whatever, motorbike in front of her and she screams, you know, remove head from sphincter, then drive. He's kind of like <laughs> an asshole, okay? Like what's, she can be mad about that. Or um, Bobby Ridgeway's uh, testicle retrieval, he tried to grope her in the lunch line. So like what? Oh yeah. That whole thing where it's like, okay, so she's being characterized in a certain way, but at a certain point, like they kind of deserve it. Cat did nothing wrong whatsoever. Hashtag cat did. Hashtag cat did nothing wrong. Yes, <laughs> absolutely, and especially when she rams into that jackass's car in the parking lot. Again, similarities between Clueless is uh, you know the the strong female lead, uh, not oblivious in this case to what she's doing. They even say at one point that that cat is into Thai food, feminist prose, and angry girl music of the indie rock persuasion, which goes to show <laughs> that she has good taste and taste that's yeah. similar to my own. That sounds great. What is what? It, it is weird how she represents like this counterculture that is now it's been like twenty twenty. Like everything she likes in this movie is like very cool. You know what I mean? Like, or at least like probably mainstream ish right like oh she likes indie music and feminism and but general maybe activism. because it was never actually counterculture right yeah. it's it's the valley girl thing again right i'm, I'm getting heavy valley girl vibes from this i want to go back to listen to our episode. <laughs> uh all right well i uh invite you to do the same but i'll lead just to give everybody time but uh there were just so many times that i marked down things that just made me laugh or that were really good uh, about this movie, I guess one is when Allison Janney is she's thinking up uh, the next like really horrible adjective to, disc- to to use in in the smut she's writing, um, and it's like there's a contra zoom with a really sharp focus on her face that's just slowly stretching out in a very like dr- highly dramatic way, and of course it pauses for comedic effect, but it's like just such a specific like cinema, uh, cinema choice that it makes to have that. And when I think of contra zoom, I think of, uh, what like rear, not rear window vertigo 
and Evil Dead. So knowing that like the same camera movement concepts for those movies is being used here for a very like we're just staring at a middle-aged woman's closed eyes as she's thinking of the next horny thing to say in a book she's writing just very perfectly timed comedically. Um, anytime that there's one of those jokes where it's like somebody's thinking of a word or, or they want to come up with like a, something to describe something and somebody gives them a word, but the other person just does not know what that word means. And then substitutes with like, in the case of, uh, I'm forgetting the guy's name. I don't give it, I don't give a shit about the character's name. Who's a shithead. Um, he's the model who has two different headshots, one where he's wearing a black shirt and white shirt and he holds them both up and asks Bianca for her opinion. And he says, and she says white shirt and he says, yeah, it makes me look more. And she says, pensive and he says damn i was going for thoughtful <laughs> that is just every time that appears in a movie always a surefire funny fucking moment um and then there was one neat moment where it's when it's after shit, i'm forgetting where it falls in the plot but it's when um cat comes to confront bianca about like her, her dating prospects and sort of uh where, where she's going and how she's upset with uh with the model guy um, and how, uh, cat knew that she was just after her sister, all that. And there's really dramatic, like she's watching real world. Bianca is watching real world Seattle on the TV. And, uh, just for a moment, the music switches on the TV to a very dramatic, like heart to heart moment type music that I thought was, was like soundtrack music. And then, uh, cat seems very obviously perturbed by it and turns it off. And it's just like, Oh, so that was still coming from the TV. We're, we're playing with that, like sort of diegetic aspect to the music, uh, where it was like fitting the scene in the scene. Yeah, I don't know. It was just, it was just goofy enough for me to, for me to point out and like, um, is this, is this a failed bit? Should we, does anybody else have any of those at the top of their head or should we, should we, uh, I, I, I can throw one out there to to give um, an additional. We we haven't talked about uh, Joey Donner, the that character played by Andrew Keegan, a whole lot to give him another um, another bit of light. There's that moment at the party where he's you know he's doing his one man show to impress you know everybody within earshot. There's some random passerby that uh, goes past him and just hey, there's a, a fight going on. And he runs away and then very emphatically, very passionately, like the most, like probably the most he emotes in the whole movie, this character just screams, fight! Um, Uh, He like drops Keyfabe. He's like, sorry, go ahead, Taylor. I said, you forgot the ooh at the front where it's. Yeah, he goes, ooh, Oh, you're right. You're right. (laughs) Very important. That is extremely important to that moment. He transforms, right? Like, he becomes exactly the, like, dumb uh, teenage kid that everybody else is. Yeah, more than any more than any other moment in this in this movie, he turns into Bobby Briggs from Twin Peaks at that very exact moment. I loved that. I'm gl- so glad you brought that up. Anyone um, else? In general, I think that, that every... Like, we had talked about this at the top, but there's something about this particular persuasion of movie that makes me think that the jokes are going to be of a certain cadence and tone. And when this movie repeatedly transgressed on that tone, it worked every single time, particularly because the dirty and raunchy jokes in this movie all work out pretty well. Um, I don't want to steal Cody's final uh, quote here, Cody, Cody's quote at the end, but uh, there's, there's one point where... Um, Somebody brings up kissing to the the dad and the 
the dad's like, oh, kissing. Kissing doesn't keep me up to my elbows in placenta all night long. <laughs> and, like, that's such a funny, sharp line. And there are a lot of lines like that. And just, like, like strategically placed uh, swear words um, that work really well. And just, like, oh, here's another example is, like, during that montage when they're talking about um, – like if they can find Cat a date and they're interviewing all these guys, one of the guys, and he finds these losers because these losers are the only guys that would even show up and they're down in like the school basement or something. And one of these guys goes, uh, yeah, maybe I would date Cat if we were the only two people left on earth. And then there's like a pregnant pause and he goes, and there weren't any sheep. And then there's another pause. And this is all done in like office style, like interviews. And then he goes, are there any sheep? And it's like, what kind of a teenage, like, like funny romance movie has like a weird joke about sheep fucking in the middle of it? It's just like, it's not what you expect. And it's pretty sharp and funny. And there's a lot of that in this movie that works pretty well for me, I think. And just like, it, it strikes a really good tone of being like, just clever enough that you can tell that the teenagers that this is supposed to appeal to would actually feel like it was for them would actually feel like it was clever enough not to be talking down to them. And that is um, exceptional, I think, and, like, really rare for a movie of this kind. Really, the one-liners are iconic in this movie. I mean, going off of what you're saying about their dad, you know, the point where they're trying to leave to go to the party, and Gabrielle Union, who we have not spoken about this entire time, which is unfortunate because that's generally how she's treated in the movie itself – um yep. but she goes you know it's just a party and he goes and hell is just a sauna like <laughs> he like he's so well and then bianca says you know you're so completely unhinged um because he is and it's so funny but another <laughs> i don't know why don't ask me one line that has always stood out to me is when they are at the bar with patrick and they're talking about the plan and you know, Cameron is describing why they're doing this because he's so in love with Bianca, blah, blah, blah. Um, and Patrick says, what is it with this chick? Does she have beer flavored nipples? Um, and that reminds me so much of clueless, the Monet comment a little bit, just like, (laughs) you know, from, from up from far away, it's okay, but up close, it's a big old mess. It's just like not understanding what everybody sees in a certain person. Um, I feel like there have been a lot of people with beer flavored nipples in my life where I just have not understood it. Um, <laughs> why everybody loves them. It's a metaphor. And like, I, I have literally used that phrase about certain people. Um, but I, I think it's just like, where do, who comes up with a line like that? I think it's great. Um, and again, it's sharp. Like, like what we've been saying. Yeah. It's, unexpectedly. So it's really, that's a really good line. Yeah. It, it's. I, th- I don't think it's a coincidence that some of these, some of my favorite lines came from Heath Ledger, and I wonder how much of that is the writing, and how much of that was, again, how much of that might have just been ad libbed. But there's even a moment where it's like, I think it's in one of the lulls where between Cat um, and Patrick and uh, Michael and Cameron come up to Patrick in the lunch line, and Michael says, "Sweet love, renew thy force." He's going to launch into the sonnet, and Patrick's like, "Hey." don't say shit like that to me <laughs> and it, like it's not it's not a joke he's saying it to like get him to to stop talking but it's just very in the moment like it's almost like heath ledger is saying like hey that's that's not cool it's not like the character is saying it almost um i i like those i like those lines a lot uh all right um 
then I think it is time. If if we have time, we're running a little late. I believe I believe it is time. All right. Well, then let's head to Cody's noties. We fucking better have time. Uh, we've got a couple of them here today. This first one will not be interactive. Apologies, but I promise the second one will be. So I'll get the, through this first one. It's something we attempted uh, on a previous episode. Um, we're going to give it another whirl here, uh, and that is Six Degrees of Goofy Movie. Um, so to quickly sum up, oh, this geez. is the sa- same idea as Six Degrees of Separation or Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. It's uh, an exploration of how the interconnectedness of cinematic art can be explained through a goofy movie's place in history as well as filmographies. Um, So today we've got a few sets of bleachers that we need to dance across to get us from 10 Things I Hate About You to a goofy movie. And we're going to start with um, one of the MVPs of uh, that movie and uh, this episode, maybe, uh, Daryl Chill Mitchell, as he's credited, uh, the the teacher, Mr. Morgan, uh, in 10 Things I Hate About You. Um, As we talked about, he showcased a lot of uh, like fast-talking deadpan, Um, and he flexed similar chops actually as Tommy Weber in the movie Galaxy Quest. Um, and for those unfamiliar, uh, the quick breakdown for uh, for Galaxy Quest is uh, the cast of a hit space opera TV series gets pulled into a real world intergalactic conflict and they need to play out the roles from their show for real in order to save earth uh, as well as an alien race, the one that they're helping. Uh, it rules. Uh, I like it a lot. If you haven't seen it, I would recommend, uh, visiting it, um, or revisiting it. Uh, if it's an old favorite, um, I like it a lot, despite, uh, it's starring Tim Allen, uh, who plays essentially the lead of that film, Jason Nesmith. Um, now Allen, uh, Tim Allen is, is, I would say most well known for three things in this world, uh, in particular, uh, the mugshot from when he was arrested for running cocaine. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, Google that if you haven't, uh, or don't. That's cool too. The Home Improvement Grunt, uh, which I uh, thank you for doing that because I was not going to. Uh, and his lending his voice to the Spaceman toy Buzz Lightyear in the Toy Story franchise, um, which brings us to our final connecting piece found among the the pretty rich voice cast of the Toy Story movies. Uh, the man of the hour for this exercise will be none other than Wallace Shawn who voices the lovably timid uh, toy dinosaur Rex in Toy Story. And uh, does anybody here uh, remember who he voiced in a Goofy movie? Did he play one of the... Yeah, the uh, principal. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, what was that, Harry? He was the principal, right? Principal Mazer, the asshole-ish uh, administrator. At Your Mexico. son will end up in the electric chair. <laughs> he, <laughs> He does not tolerate any goof-level shenanigans. Um, but there we have it. That is yet another instance of uh, a goofy movie bringing us all together. Bravo, bravo. Well done, well I done. Can, yes. I, I, for one, cannot wait until episode 100 of our podcast covering the goofy movie, 1993. Yeah. Stay tuned, indeed. Um, but to, to get you all back into the fold here, we're going to transition to uh, a different type of goof, uh, if you will, uh, movie goofs for a, a new bit a uh, new segment with the working title try love beyond blunderdome welcome to another edition of blunderdome <laughs> is what i went with uh and i realized just prior to us recording that that name was uh initially used as the name of an episode of the simpsons uh episode one of season 11 in fact so shout out to the simpsons please don't sue us perfect, uh, perfect. Well, I mean, well, you, you choosing that name was itself a blunder Hey, 
Yeah, thus concludes the bit. Um, But uh, the purpose of this game is to lovingly commemorate our favorite movies by playfully pointing out the various mistakes that came through in their final cuts, whether they're continuity errors, uh, logistical plot holes, or some other type of hilarious goof. So what I'm going to do is read the blunder handpicked from the Internet Movie Database, um, and y'all are going to give me the name of the movie the goof belongs to. And fittingly, today's theme is going to be uh, high school and or teen movies. So uh, just for example, if I were to say the following, when Patrick and Kat are in the pedal boat, though they are pedaling, they do not move. You all would say... 10 Things I Hate About You. That's right. Okay. I hate about you. Uh, uh, Taylor, Taylor, are you any good with movie trivia or are we all going to be equally lost here? We will see. Uh, I'm, All right. I'm I'm sometimes okay at it, sometimes not. Really depends. <laughs> For sure, we got we got this. <laughs> yeah, I I think this will be. I, I think it'll be fine. Uh, but then again, I made it, so who knows? Um, but let's give it a go. Uh, we'll have this be a, a collaborative game. So once you hear the goof, uh, once you hear it in full, um, go ahead and shout your guesses. Um, so we'll start with what I think is an easy one. Um, <clears throat> When Elton's shoe hits Ty in the head at the valley party, the hand of a crew member, who is obviously throwing the shoe from out of shot, can be seen quickly on the left in the widescreen edition of the movie. Where does that goof belong? I would say just just shout him out if you got him. Oh, come on. It's easy. It's clueless. Yeah. That's right. Of course. Right. Yeah, of course. It's, I, I said it was an easy one. Look, you can't sandbag yourselves <laughs> and then be, oh, come on. What is this shit? That's okay. But yes, clueless. You were not clueless. What he's sandbagging. Are we really supposed to just shout? I'm like, don't want to cut anybody off here. Don't want to, but. Maybe we should raise our hands and then we can all answer. Okay. It's, uh, we'll it's the way that works. Doggy dog here. Uh, Cody, you're, you're master of this, of these ceremonies. Do you want to call it? Do you want to like, hey, Harry put up his hand first? Sure, I'll I'll watch out of the corner of my eye if we want to do the hand raising. That sounds like it could be something. And these are a lot of these are such cherry pickable answers. Um, I think we'll be in good shape. If it turns out you don't know it, go ahead and put your hand down. I won't rat you out or anything. But we'll move on to the second one. Uh, raise your hand once you know it. I'll keep my eye on it um, and call on whoever raises it first. Um, this one during the montage scene, Chris gives Olive movie passes worth forty dollars which she mentions will expire in her voiceover. However, since 1997, California law has mandated that gift certificates, in fact, cannot expire. Um, Taylor, where does that goof belong? Is that easy, A? It is easy, A. Nice, wow. Like, who well done. Olive? Uh, Olive is, is Emma Stone's character, right? That is correct. Yeah, I can't remember which one Chris is, um, if he was like the first, her first quote unquote partner or somebody else later on. Um, haven't seen that movie in a long time, but uh, I will take IMDb uh, goofs and trivia as gospel, as we always do. Um, so moving along here, um, Amy and Molly are surprised when their Lyft driver reveals himself to be their principal, but they would have seen his picture and first name when the app matched them with him. And to what movie does that goof belong, Harry? That's Booksmart. That is together. We did. Harry and I saw that together. That is indeed Booksmart. R.I.P. Movie Theaters. R.I.P. Indeed. Um, Perfect. Uh, Next one here. When the main character first meets Kyle, 
he is sitting on a car with a license plate that starts with a six. A six was not used as a first letter on California license plates until 2007. To what movie does this goof belong? Jesus Christ. I don't. I don't have uh, any you can't, you can't just take the main character. Uh, if I had said, uh, maybe this would be a clue. If I had said the main character's name, it would not have been fun because <laughs> uh, it would have been very obvious. Um, but we're th- uh, we're thinking about you know some uh, some smoldering character named Kyle sitting on a car in the daytime in a movie that takes place in the early two thousands, uh, maybe in the state of California, maybe in the city of Sacramento. Who knows? Uh, is this doing anything for anybody? No. What if I had what Mrs. if I had said, what if I had said the main character replace that with um, Lady Bird? Would that give anybody an extra oh. clue? <laughs> no. Well, Jesus, that's right. The movie was it was indeed Observe and Report, the police comedy starring Seth Rogen. Well done, everybody. Um, <laughs> and uh, this is our last goof. Um, and this is um, it's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, so I'd recommend paying attention hey, um, for, for this one. Since you're reading so much, I'll be referee on whose hand went up first. Okay, sure. That works. Um, when young Becca is looking at the penis drawing, the drawing itself obviously changes from the in front of Becca scene to the behind Becca scene. Having the young actress actually view the penis drawing would have violated California law, California law showing up again in the behind Becca scene. A small handed adult is actually holding the drawing. So to what, dick drawing filled movie set in a high school uh probably taking place in the mid 2000s does this goof belong and it looks like that was that was aaron jason do you concur i concur is it okay. super bad it is indeed super bad what a point on the board baby Woo! made it on the board at the final closing seconds here um but yeah those are the goofs um was anybody keeping score nope i certainly wasn't uh <laughs> i feel like uh, what Taylor and Harry got a couple? Am I making that up? I think we all won, really, because we all got to enjoy Cody's bloops. Oh Jesus! Yep, bring on the bloops. Hashtag show us the bloops. I am. This is a very pro bloops podcast, or maybe I'm just a pro bloops person. I yep. think Taylor won, though. To be fair, why? I think I you had the most correct. Yeah, I, I feel like even won. even if you weren't first, I think that we both had one, and then there was one that. Uh, that only you had, but like we shared one, so okay. I think that puts you in front. Your uh, yeah, your your engraved plaque uh, saying Taylor's Astro Bloop Queen uh, will be in the mail uh, by the end of the week. Um, oh. So display that proudly. Thank you. Just in time for my birthday. Oh, hey. Hey. Happy birthday! Happy birthday! Happy birthday. Uh, um, I for one. <laughs> I'm very glad that you could be here, Taylor. I'm so glad that we got a guest who was so personally involved with this movie and has so many uh, very intimate and personal thoughts about it. It uh, always makes the episodes better when when people actually care about the movie. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I care about it too much. So I'll always be happy to share my thoughts. That is our flavor exactly. You uh, belonged right here right now. Uh, and that has been our episode about 10 Things I Hate About You, 1999 film playing at the Trilon this coming weekend. You can find your tickets at trilon.org if you should choose to actually go after purchasing a ticket. Wear a mask. Do not bring any edibles, consumables, or anything into the theater that would require you to take off your mask. 
Um, please just fucking listen to us and, and to the trial on when they say don't go in without wearing a mask. Uh, and if you don't want to go, feel free to support them with a donation or I know that they've got, they've got some merch available between them and the cult film collective. Just hit up trilon.org for all of that. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. This is Trilove. You can find our podcast on Twitter at Trilove podcast. You can find the Trilon cinema at Trilon cinema across all social media. Again, I'm Jason Daphnis and my at is Nintendoofus. Oh, I probably should have opened the door to Taylor. Would you like to share any pluggables, socials, things you want people to look at? Sure. I think I'm funny on Twitter, so you can find me at at T-E-E emotional. Incredible. I appreciate that. Uh, then I'll let the rest of the crew take it away. I apologize for that, inter- for that uh, interruption. You're good. Uh, that was very important and good uh, because Taylor is uh, great and funny on Twitter. Y'all should follow her. Um, I've been Cody Narvison. If you'd like, you can follow me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Uh, sorry, I'm Harry. If you end up watching this movie and you're a fan of Cowboy Bebop, take note of how Joseph Gordon-Levitt dresses exactly like Spike Spiegel when he goes to the party. <laughs> Holy <laughs> fucking shit. <laughs> uncanny and unnerving, and I didn't bring it up until now, and so now I have to. Uh, it's cool, and more people should dress like that, I guess. Uh, I'm at Twitter, uh, at Shiitake Harry. And I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. Tune in next week for another episode people i guess as his hand slid up her creamy white thighs she could feel his huge bratwurst pulsating with desire
want you to want me.